Welcome back to Read and Succeed. I'm your host, Dave Campbell, here on your community radio station, 106.5 FM, WFMPLP Louisville, reviewing Ann Boyer's 2019 Cancer Memoir and 2020 Pulitzer Prize winner for general nonfiction, The Undying. Justin Magnuson from Louisville's Before I Die Festival joins to discuss. Stay tuned. Goodman, host of Democracy Now! Greetings to all Democracy Now! listeners on Pacifica Affiliate Forward Radio 106.5 FM, WFMP LP in Louisville, Kentucky. This grassroots community radio station relies on volunteer power and your financial support to continue broadcasting the progressive, national, and homegrown local programming you've come to expect from Forward Radio. At a time when our public airwaves are being gobbled up by corporate interests, here's an open mic dedicated to local voices, civic engagement, and community empowerment. Please go to forwardradio.org and pledge your generous support today. Thank you so much. Welcome to Episode 11 of Reading Succeed, getting right into it with Mr. Justin Magnuson from the University of Louisville's Traeger Institute and host of Louisville's Before I Die Festival, discussing American poet, essayist, and professor at the Kansas City Art Institute and Boyer's 2020 Pulitzer Prize-winning work, The Undying. Her literary journal as she navigated and survived triple negative breast cancer and aggressive treatment in 2014. Simply put, the text speaks for itself. It's worldview changing. It is a must-read. As I talk about in my interview with Justin, I thought I'd observe the full spectrum of human suffering during my experiences as a serviceman in the Iraqi war, but, my friends, if you have survived chemotherapy, you have my respect. Even if you didn't survive chemotherapy, you still have my respect. Some of Boyer's passages as she documents her experiences are terrifying. The best adjective I can find to describe most of the book. Justin and I talk about the one universal equalizer in human experience, death, and ways to make conversations about death and the here and now part of a well-lived life. Please visit us at readandsucceed.net, visit forwardradio.org to donate to community radio, and enjoy this interview. Ladies and gentlemen, our next guest on Read and Succeed is Mr. Justin Magnuson. Justin's life work is to change our cultural approach to the end of life. Inspired by being his grandmother's health care surrogate and years of hospice volunteering, Justin works in the Louisville on several fronts to accomplish this goal. He started by hosting Death Cafes and facilitating the Conversation Project in 2014. Since then, he has collaborated with Kindred Spirits on National Healthcare Decisions Day events and co-founded the city's first Before I Die Festival in 2016. Justin works at the University of Louisville Traeger Institute, continues to host the Before I Die Fest, collaborating with multiple community organizations to offer education and events related to death and dying. To learn more about the Traeger Institute, visit www.traegerinstitute.org. That's T-R-A-G-E-R. And their events in 2020, visit beforeidieloop.com. That's beforeidielou.com. Or email Justin. J-A-M-A-G-N-0-1 at louisville.edu. Justin, welcome to Read Succeed. Hey, thanks for having me here, Dave. It's great to talk to you again. So the text that we are going to be talking about today is the 2020 Pulitzer Prize winner for general nonfiction. It's called The Undying, Pain, Vulnerability, Mortality, Medicine, Art, Time, Dreams, Data, Exhaustion, Cancer, and Care by American poet Ann Boyer. 
But before we talk about the book that we read, I want to ask Justin the question that we ask all of our guests on Read and Succeed, and that is, are you a reader, and when and where did that start? Oh, gosh. I mean, I've always been a reader. The content and the subject matter that I read has changed pretty dramatically over the years, but my earliest memories are of being read to when I was in bed as a little kid. Probably like most children, the Golden Books or the Dr. Seuss books. And then as I got a little older, I remember my mom reading to us Tom Sawyer and then learned to read on my own. Probably the typical kids' books, but then, you know, as I've gotten older, kind of a mixture of philosophy. Clearly, Death and Dying is something that I read most of now, but I also read for pleasure and enjoy a good story. So kind of read across the board. Now, you said you started with Dr. Seuss when you were a kid. Was there any cat in the hat in there? Yeah, probably Cat in the Hat, and I'm terrible with book titles, but what was The the Grinch Who Stole Christmas, The Lorax, uh, pretty much all the Dr. Seusses. I love the whimsicalness. My mom also read Shel Silverstein to us, and I just loved the poetry of how people can be really whimsical and tell a story at the same time. The Giving Tree. You know, those were staples of early 80s and late 80s childhood. The Shel Silverstein and Dr. Seuss. I can remember the giving tree in our home. I remember my parents reading Dr. Seuss, and it's particularly it was one of them where this guy kept cutting the grass. The faster he mows, the faster it grows. It's funny, at the time, I thought that those books were written by another child. They were not. They were written by you know, an older author, but were written in such a manner that I understood them intrinsically, even at you know four and five years old. So what I love about particularly the Dr. Seuss and Shel Silverstein is it's something that I think parents can also enjoy as well. I've read to my nieces and nephews, and some of it is just so tedious and, you know, there's nothing to make your imagination work. And there's something about Shel Silverstein or Dr. Seuss. There's actually some really good books out now that I've gotten my nieces and nephews that can kind of work for both the parent and the child. Oh, yeah, yeah. There's, we, we got an episode coming up, we're assuming in November, where we look at the American Library Award winners for this year in terms of like the Caldecott, Youth Media Awards, children's books. Interestingly enough, this year, they all have to do with concepts of race and white privilege and et cetera. It's like I said, there's that dichotomy between okay, who's learning more here, the child or the adult that's reading it to the child. And, and we're going to dissect some of those concepts within those, those texts. And lastly, I know we'll get into this as we get further into this episode, but was it nonfiction or fiction that started transitioning you into kind of the work that you're doing right now in terms of death and dying? So it was, oh gosh, at this point, I've definitely read more fiction books, but it was probably Atul Gawande's Being Mortal in a series of essays that he and some other authors did. So that would have been 2013, 2014. I read an article that he published in the Atlantic that was about a young woman who was terminally ill and I think she was pregnant and his ability to use language to both capture the the heartbreak of the human experience but then also to broaden the lens a little bit of how to approach a living human being who's in a tragic situation just really opened up my mind that death and dying while being poignant can also be a rich experience and not something to turn away from. Sure, and so, yeah. Yeah. And so I, I would say that he was the first person that did it artfully in a way before I'd really done much work. I'd been doing hospice volunteering, but a lot of that was pretty cerebral, but also just the going through the motions of learning how to be with people who are terminally ill. 
yeah, yeah no chance yeah terminally that's that's big that's big so so you know learning how to face it but then literature and nonfiction has been an excellent way to connect with other people i'm part of a book club that's been meeting for almost three years and it's a mixture but most of the books are fiction and when you use a story that you're not attached to there's something about fiction that makes it a little bit of a distance where you can kind of see yourself in the different roles yeah, and yeah. and so they both have a place but i think it was really a tool of the one day and being mortal that was the first time i could see someone's experience really reflected back and and how much care and love it took for everyone involved to try and find a way to make the situation better. I think every book kind of touches into that a little bit, but I guess that's a good way to start into it is recognizing that I think nonfiction and fiction can serve different roles and probably have different purposes in, in general, but I, mean, I think they both have a place. Okay, so we're talking about, you know, your work is in Death and Dying. However, the book is titled The Undying. Obviously, Miss Boyer did not die, but the text is, for, for those that didn't listen to our review at the beginning of the show, the text was a series of reflections and thoughts and inner dialogue about the author as she was diagnosed with triple negative breast cancer, which almost killed her. She went through chemotherapy, obviously survived, got multiple second opinions throughout the process, entered into an aggressive of treatment and even though obviously her experience did not lead her to dying she came very close and there's elements of that within the text of nearing death's door but fundamentally this essay is more about her physical experience and about her relationship with her body and how she viewed herself in cancer and as the human body goes through the medical system how she responded to that both physically emotionally and spiritually when it came out it was kind of marketed as a modern day illnesses metaphor and if anybody listens to our two previous episodes of reading succeed that essay was written by jewish american cultural critic susan sontag back in the late 70s. It was actually 1978. And as Sontag herself was diagnosed with breast cancer, and that had more to do with language, the linguistic response in the terms of the word cancer is also a metaphor for issues within society. You know, this is a cancer that's growing in this segment of society, or this has been a cancer for me. Nobody ever says anything like, oh, this has been a COVID-19 for me, or this has been a... Um... Actually, I take that back. The word pandemic is currently getting metaphorized, that that's a word. There's pandemics of ignorance. There's pandemics of other things for good and for bad purposes. But Sontag's essay was fundamentally about semantics, linguistics. Boyer's essay, I felt that it was centered on her body and the physical terror of going through that experience. And when I think about how I felt about the book, and Justin and I have actually had this conversation already, some of this was terrifying. Chemotherapy is terrifying. So Justin, I'd like to get your thoughts on the book as we transition into the work that you do. I think she was trying to figure out what it is to be a sick person and to focus on your own experience. And I would be really curious to know if she read all of the books and all of the ideas that she shares throughout the book, because she shares Sontag, she shares Jacqueline Susan, Rachel Carson, Audrey Lord. She shares so many people throughout the book that I feel like she's searching for the words to capture her experience because so much of it, and she talks about this at one point where she talks about the person with cancer is always someone's mother or sister. You know, it, it's sort yep. of like 
focuses the lens out to someone else. And I feel like the book really is her process of trying to find her place in it and looking at particularly women in cancer and particularly breast cancer. What does it mean? I mean, the amount of reading that she you know, must have had to do to bring in these different voices had to be pretty tremendous. Absolutely. I, I mean, I think as a professional author, some of those foundations were already there. I'm a, but you're, you're right. It, she was drawing on a massive amount of literary sources. And, and you're definitely also right about the feminine aspect of the book. Here, Justin and I are two men sitting here discussing this book, but it was written by a white American woman from the perspective of a white American woman. And you could feel in some ways it was written for other women, and particularly that it was breast cancer, the physical symbolism of femininity. That added a particular level of intensity to the experience. And she was even making those comments. She was like, my breasts are going to be severed from my body and thrown into an incinerator. I can tell you as a man reading it, that was terrifying. She was doing everything she could as she was journaling this to kind of recenter herself. Okay, I am sick, and what does it mean to be a sick person, as Justin said? I mean, she does make the good point, though, that to get breast cancer, you just have to simply have breast tissue. Although it does skew heavily towards women, men can have breast cancer, too. That, so that would be an interesting conversation to sit her down with a man who's had breast cancer to hear his perspective on is it somehow demasculating because it is so heavily thought of as a gendered yep. cancer. And, and I think that she does a, a really nice job of talking about different lenses to look at this. There's the gendered lens. There's the age lens. It's the social economic lens. There's the race lens. You, you look at all these different lenses and the marital status lens. Yeah, the marital status lens. You know, I've heard, and this will kind of transition into probably later in the conversation, but I hear people talk about being terminally ill and trying to date. Yeah. Just because you're terminally ill doesn't mean that you don't want human connection. Yeah, yeah. And maybe we'll talk about this a little bit. She talks about her bed becoming her sick bed. There's this section where she describes her sick bed. 26 weeks into it, the week after my 41st birthday, it becomes my sickbed, the most tragic piece of furniture I will ever own. Yeah. I mean, there's something about that. So imagine her bed in a yard sale at some point. Yeah. That bed isn't going to carry the same weight for somebody else that it does for her. But I think she does a nice job of trying to layer the meanings on things that other people might not have or might not glean unless they really dig into it. And that's what I think she does really well. She really digs into her experience. Yeah, it's a, actually a, it's a quite small book. You know, it's around about 300 pages, but some pages are poetry. It's not a really heavy read. You could almost read it in one or two sittings. You could probably get it read in a weekend. It was a fast read, but I felt if the purpose of writing is to bring someone else into your emotional experience, particularly of journaling, which this book was definitely both essay and journal simultaneously, I left reading this book feeling some of the exhaustion that she felt from going through it. I think you're right about it in terms of she was talking about going into terminal or near terminal illness without being married or having a family and how insurance and the healthcare industry themselves, you're kind of on your own with that. And she was also talking about a lot of people get diagnosed with cancer and we have these visions, which I think are marketed by some pharmaceutical companies and in the healthcare industry of you get illness, you're surrounded by this team of doctors and family and members and loved ones. She gave a little more realistic and stark perspective on that and said, you may lose your romantic partner entering into serious illness or terminal illness. And if you're an underrepresented minority, if you're a woman and if you're single, 
your rates of survival are rapidly decreasing across that whole spectrum. And that's something that I never thought of, and I walked away from this text a lot smarter to and more aware of than I did going into it. I don't think people recognize the strain that severe illness puts on a relationship. Sure. Uh, so what kind of got me led down this path? I mean, being my grandmother's healthcare surrogate, I was 25. It was about three or four years later that I went back to finish my undergrad. That I was taking a health communication class that the light bulb started going off. That there's a connection between how we discuss health-related issues and the care that we receive and the outcomes that we experience that I started thinking, well, this is really how I want to spend my life. I want to spend my life examining this. And we discussed in the class, and it, I was 28, 29. I was in a long-term relationship at that point. And the students in the class, we went over some statistic, and I think it was like 60% of, it may have been people with MS, 60% of patients with MS that are married wind up divorced, and it was a higher percentage than the regular divorce rate. And the younger students were kind of horrified of like, I can't believe that a spouse would leave their spouse when they're in such need. And I was just like, I'm surprised it's not higher. Wow. And I don't mean to be cynical, but just recognizing that relationships are hard, and then you add on this whole other layer of stress of that spoke to where I was with my relationship at that time. My significant other, my spouse at the time was experiencing pretty severe mental health issues. Sure, sure. And, and it's really hard. Yeah. And to see it through their eyes, it's really hard on them as well. And, yeah. and it gets really complex. But you're right. It's like you're thinking about it as a single person. That's something to consider. It's like if you are sick and you are single, how do you get the care that you need? It's such a rich, complex conversation. Well, speaking of that conversation, I want to use this next question to kind of transition into the work that you do. Because the work that you do, just like Read and Succeed, is about communication and it's about bringing social media as a platform to get these conversations started. This is a direct quote from The Undying, and Ms. Boyer says, this, this quote stuck with me in this book more than anything else. She says, my fear wasn't of cancer itself, about which I knew almost nothing then. My fear came from a search engine. I was afraid of what Google gave back to me when I entered, quote unquote, breast lump into it, afraid of the culture of disease as circulated on blogs and on discussion boards. That's a quote from The Undying in 2019 that you probably would not have read in Illnesses Metaphor in 1978. Obviously, there was no internet in 1978. Sontag was using her books, similar to Anne Boyer, language and literature as a means to kind of center herself. Now we live in a world where if you get sick or if you have mental health issues, you're using Google as a partner to be able to explain to you what's going on as a sort of a second opinion to your doctor. Justin, could you talk to us about the work that you do with the Before I Die Festival and the role that you think that social media can play in death and dying? I want you to talk about the, the content of the conversations and then how you guys are using all these different platforms to get those conversations. Because clearly, as Ann Boyer is saying, it can be a double-edged sword. There's the deluge of information that may help you, but then there's also a level of isolation that can occur. Well, that's a great point. When you think about, so you and I can talk right now over Microsoft Teams, right? Yep. Because we've met each other once before, it's almost like talking to you in person. Yep. But it's not quite. 
And that's something that I'm really aware of is that you can use social media and you can put out hashtags, pretty succinct pieces of information. But to really make the connection and if there's any kind of misunderstanding, it's really hard to clear up through social media. Sure. And, it, and you said it very, very well the first time we had lunch about people have a very short attention span in terms of reading. And Ricky Jones has talked about this. If you're not familiar with Ricky Jones, he's at the University of Louisville, Pan-African Studies. He talks about this of you have to have different layers of information where you have the hashtag, you have the 800 word article, you have the hour long radio show, then you have the 25 page essay, and then you have the 300 page book. Yeah. And you sort of need to be able to expand and contract your information to meet the person that's in front of you and to meet a diverse audience in terms of interest and in terms of just where they are in life and where they are in their process. And so I think social media offers some pretty amazing ways to maybe slightly blow the surface engagement, a hashtag, an article, maybe an interview. And that's a way to kind of draw people in. But when you start talking about the real fundamental deep changes that we need to have around not just our awareness and our perception of our mortality, but then the action steps that we need to take to really change things. That's a really long, slow, intimate, vulnerable, in-depth process that I think you lose through social media. So the conversations within the Before I Die Festival, what sort of conversations are occurring there and where are they occurring? All things equal, obviously, we're in 2020, so, so they're so, occurring in a different manner. But talk about them in normal times and then these sort of abnormal times. So the normal times, and it's really taken me, I'm going to say six years to get to a point where I can stand up in front of a room full of people and say, okay, we're going to talk about death and dying and not feel some sense of I need to ask for permission from the audience or I need to feel like I'm an imposter. So so it's taken me a long time to get to this part. In the past, our first year, we did 20 events in a month and it was crazy, but it was awesome because we had all these different collaborators providing different pieces of the experience. So we did a tour of a cemetery. We did conversations around what you do with the body when somebody dies. We had a conversation with art and music and food, funeral food. We had a speaker come to town. We had a poetry reading. So we're trying to meet people in different spheres. And death and dying is always some way threaded into the presentation, the conversation, or somehow the medium. And that's something we've done every year. We've kind of tried different variations. We've tried collaborating with different people. We've tried doing different formats. And what's been really disappointing about 2020 is back in January, we had a book reading and a woman was coming to town for a reading at a local church. And her book was around religious travels to places of pilgrimage around death and dying. Sure. sure and like she contacted me, which was pretty cool and said, hey, I'm coming to town. Would you like to collaborate? And I was like, you know, you're coming in January, which is like the worst possible time to host an event. We're starting to plan it at Thanksgiving, which is the worst time to ever plan anything. I can't promise you anything, but if nothing else, my book club will be there. Yeah. So we used it for our book club book that month. 
So we had our book club meeting and then she came and then probably 40 people came on a rainy Saturday afternoon to my wife's cafe in Portland. Hmm. And it was amazing because it's like there was something about standing up in front of that audience. I didn't feel like I needed the permission anymore. Like it's like, oh, this is the thing. People came. They're interested. And there was a fantastic conversation. And then in February, we had another conversation and 40 people came to that. And the conversation was around how would we transform our community to provide a community model of care? And we broke it up into four segments. We broke up into a segment that was around awareness and preparation being aware of your mortality, and what are the steps that every person needs to take to prepare themselves and their family members. So advanced directives, legal wills, things like property, planning about if an emergency happened, this is what I would want you to do. So really getting the preparation piece underway. If you become either chronically ill or terminally ill, what level of care do you want? So if you were the author of this book, if you're Ann Boyer, at what point do you say, I don't want any more curative treatment, I don't want to undergo chemo, or I want to receive palliative care alongside my curative treatments, and then I want to transition to hospice care? You know, it's like it's like, how do you get enough information and make enough decisions that if you're in that chronically ill place, that you make a decision that you can change the course of your treatment and knowing what questions to ask, knowing who you want to have on your team. Do you want an end of life doula? Really getting into who are the resources in town? What processes that people need to complete to really make these informed decisions? Who in their life needs to be part of that conversation? And then if they transition to hospice care and they die, once you die, what do you want done with your body? Do you just want to be buried in a coffin in a vault in Cave Hill Cemetery? Or do you want something that's a little different? For myself, I want to have a home funeral. I want people that I know and people from my spiritual tradition to be there to prepare my body. And I want kind of getting a little bit more specific about the kind of service I would want and not want. Mostly for me, it's what I don't want. And then can I be buried in a natural burial ground? Can I be buried without a coffin, without some kind of liner that's not going to biodegrade? And can I have as little impact on the earth as possible? And then after I'm dead, what support's going to be available for the people that I leave behind, for my spouse, for my friends? Is there some kind of ritual or some kind of support they can get either both within our community friends or people that are part of our everyday community or the broader community like grief counseling, things like that. Mm -hmm. And so it's really, I recognize, and Ann Boyer touches on this in the book, that you recognize that if you're of different ethnicities or socioeconomic status, you're not going to have access to home health. You're not going to have access to the best oncologist in town. And that's going to be most of us. Most of us are not going to have the top of the line treatment. So Knowing that, how do we make decisions and how do we get care? How do we get care if we're single? How do we get care if we can't afford to have a home health nurse come five days a week? Really thinking about, are there people in my network that could provide some of that care? Are there people that could do something that's a little on the lines? And this gets into a little bit broader system change, but are there mutual aid networks or something like of that model that I could tap into? Or maybe there's an exchange. Maybe I volunteer for a mutual aid network to provide respite care for the next 20 years in hopes that if I'm ever in need of respite care, somebody in that mutual aid network will support me and my family. So the awareness piece is the first piece. And then thinking about how you narrate that through your life to where not only are you thinking about the things you need to be doing, 
but also getting comfortable with being with people who are sick and yeah. and need care. And my judgment is that and it's a skill that you have to learn too. I've never been in a situation. I'll talk about some of my experiences here when you when you finished giving us this fantastic information. But I think it's okay for you to admit that you don't have the emotional tools or the language in your life to be able to think about death and dying, whether it's yourself or whether it's other people. It's a healthy thing, I think, to be able to admit that. You would agree with that, right? Oh, I don't expect anyone to have a fully-fledged concept or theory. And I also think it's totally unrealistic to think that you wouldn't be a little afraid to go into it. I think yeah. that there's lots of good evidence to show that we've always had some level of avoidance or some level of fear about this that is not just a cultural artifact of the 21st century. Sure, sure, sure. So well, that's, the nature of life is to perpetuate and preserve itself. Almost every religious system in the world is built around the question of what happens when I die. That's the universal question in morality systems. And on top of the world being completely overcrowded and overrun by every species, by just mountains of life on top of life, if human beings lived forever, temporally, here on Earth. We would have a completely different set of moral systems than we do if death was not part of our life experience. So there was probably one of the, the funner events for me was we collaborated with Helen. What is her last name? I'm spacing on her name. But this woman is a beautiful filmmaker and she made a documentary and she she interviews about seven or eight people around death and dying. And I'm totally spacing on her last name and the name of the movie. But they screened it at the speed several years ago. And so for before I die fast, we collaborated with them basically promote the film, and then I interviewed her after the film. And one of the people that she interviewed was, and I'm putting air quotes here that you can't see, a futurist. And the futurist was talking about downloading your consciousness into a machine that could be, in, you know, and, and I'm going to use the word live again in air quotes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, that you're immortal, basically. Yeah. And I was horrified. Like, to me, imagine removing any constructs of pain from consciousness. Ah, yeah. That's a terrible idea to me. And the idea that you could somehow live forever is, I mean, well, that's the stuff of vampire movies, right? I mean, that, that doesn't end well, typically. Yeah, yeah. And even within science fiction, and we, we, we hope to have some episodes about science fiction. You never think about that. You know, there, there's some elements of relating the, the human consciousness to the human soul. And if you can remove the consciousness from the body, there's a level of immortality uh, associated with that. What's it? Um, Arthur C. Clarke of 2001, the series. That was a really big theme in, in all of those, those series of books, 2001, 2010. But you're right. Okay, so the relationship between our consciousness as a current stands and a body that is susceptible to pain, dying, and death. How would our conscience be different if we were not experiencing the sort of things that Ann Boyer is experiencing in the book and the, and the sort of things that the individuals in the Before I Die Festival are experiencing? It's fascinating. And conversely, and I can't claim to have an answer on this for everyone, but for myself, 
if my body no longer had consciousness, but my heart still was beating, yeah. how do you treat, and this is a real thing with people with dementia and advanced cognitive disorders, sudden brain trauma, where you're, you're no longer have your cognitive faculties, but you still have a beating heart and lungs that are working. Yeah. And I think that this is something that's really important for advanced care planning, where you start to have discussions where it's like, if this, this, and this happens, I do not want you to put me on a device that keeps things artificially going, or I don't want you to artificially feed me. It's like the converse. It's like you could have consciousness without a body, or you could have a body without consciousness, and I think as a culture, we need to be discussing what it is to have consciousness without a body in terms of if somebody figures out how to live in a machine, are we OK with that? But I think individuals and families need to be having discussions about what is consciousness and what is life if their body is no longer has consciousness, but it has a beating heart. Yeah. And I mean, that gets much more into the realm of religion and, and ethics and really deep discussions but I really believe people should have agency over, well, and then you bring in position eight and nine, which is ending both. You're ending consciousness and you're ending beating heart. Do we have a right to do that as a culture? I mean, those are just really, it gets into multiple, I mean, you can see where this is not just the domain of any one discipline. This is a cross-disciplinary conversation. You, you know, it's it's fascinating that the things that Justin and I are talking about right now, like he was just talking about consciousness and the beating heart, you can go back 6,000 years to the Book of the Dead by the Egyptians, and they are talking about these exact same things. The heart is the center of your life. The dichotomy between your conscious systems and your mind that makes decisions and your relationship with your heart, how they both get weighed differently as you approach the end of your life. The balance between science and faith as you move towards those. Yeah, we're sitting here discussing these things in English, but these things have been talked about throughout all of human history. And they should continue to be talked about. Yeah, and not only should they continue to be talked about, but I think that, and that's what I love about Dr. Galande's book, Being Mortal, is having that mortality piece at the center of our experience, that awareness, that it's not, and, and I'm going to use, so I think when most of us talk about nature, nature, I think for a lot of people, when I hear them talk about it, is it's something outside of themselves. Yeah. You know, it's something that's over there in the distance and you can see it. Your senses can take it in. You can experience it. But it's something separate from you. It's not you. And I think our mortality and death and dying is sort of like that, that we put it outside of ourselves. And she talks about this in the book, right, where it's like cancer always happens to the mom. It doesn't happen to the, the main character. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, she, did she talk about wit in the book? I, I don't remember her talking about the play wit. But Wit is a play, and it turned into an HBO movie. It's about a woman with terminal cancer. Christopher Lloyd plays the doctor. And she undergoes, much like Ann Boyer, she undergoes pretty horrific treatment to try and stay alive. I think she has like stage four ovarian cancer in the, or uterine cancer in, in wit. But it's the same kind of thing where it's like it's really advanced cancer and her treatment is just brutal. And at the end of wit, she ends up dying. But it's the same kind of thing where you see her being the central character. She's not an ancillary character that somebody's going to visit. It is the main character, and I think that that adds a richness that we're not used to in our narratives. Yeah, yeah. Two, two things. You, the What you were talking about in terms of, like, we look at nature and uh, mortality, which is a part of nature. We feel removed, like it's it's over there. That was your exact words. You know, we, we have built this kind of this 
observational wall between us and it, even though we're a part of nature as well. That's a very Western thing. And that, that actually goes back, you can find it in the Greek writing, as they were trying to seek out what they called the forms, you know, Plato and Aristotle and Socrates and Euclid, etc. They were trying to find the pr- perfection of the forms behind the veil of nature. The concept of the perfect circle came from observing the moon and the sun. During that process, they built sort of a separation between Western civilization and nature and the relationship with nature. There was a distancing there that you you find a different one within many indigenous populations and also in African populations and, and as well as with probably within the African-American community themselves. I, I would wonder if in your work, if you have seen any different sort of demographic differences between the way that death and dying is processed. So this is something that I'm learning about right now, and I'm actually going to host a panel discussion with Interfaith as the Peace in November around racial inequality at the end of life. And I'm learning about these differences, and it's really important for me to be developing relationships where I am learning and taking this information and providing something that's useful. And it's really fascinating to me and and horrifying. And you think about the the level of mistrust. I was listening to something the other day that was talking about the Tuskegee experiments and talking about Henrietta Lacks. And so looking at the level of mistrust that exists between black Americans and the healthcare system. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we can see it right now in COVID-19. And so, yes, so, so you look at all these different layers. And I was talking to a friend who's a person of color, and I was talking about, I think a lot of white people know other white people who have died poor. And it's like, well, you'd say, well, a poor person dies the same as whether they're white or black. Yeah. And you can see that healthcare is not delivered. And that's something I'm becoming very aware of in my work is that people of color who express pain are not responded to the same as a white person who. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not, obviously I'm not, I'm not a person of color, but I have seen the social scientific literature on that very same thing. There is systematic implicit biases and racism within the healthcare industry because in American society, it's kind of baked into kind of some of our social systems that peoples of color have a higher capacity for pain than fragile white America, to be honest with you. I mean, for, for lack of a better phrase. And, 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 that, and that, that subtly, even a subconscious, but that manifests itself into the type of care that's delivered. Like I've actually seen the papers on that. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a good body of literature around that. And even if you have access to care, if there's that implicit bias, I have no idea how much it's going to shift the dying experience but I can imagine if you are that patient or you is that or that is your family member, you're going to experience a, a different, you know, even at the end, you're going to ha- have a different experience. And, and also the language that we use can be very important. And I think all people to some level will use the language of withdrawing care or giving up. And I can see how if you have felt like care has been held back from you your entire life. If you get to the end and people are talking about, say, for example, hospice care as withdrawing care, that can, you know, like the language we use can be very important. So I, don't, I haven't seen really good literature around that specifically, but I can imagine that even the ways that we talk about it. And when I talk about my own death, so first of all, it's slightly arrogant 
because, you know, I could die during this conversation from an aneurysm. Or an but, asteroid, yeah. But statistically, I'm going to die in my late 70s from heart disease. We just look at the raw data. And so I'm going to die in my late 70s from heart disease. And as a straight white college educated male, I'm going to have access to health insurance and yep. the healthcare system. So when I think about my death, if I have a statistical death, I have a very privileged death. Yeah. And even against my black counterpart, they're going to die younger. They're going to die without, and if we're just talking statistics, and, and this is, I think, something people struggle with, with statistics is you say, well, I knew so-and-so and they lived until they were 105. Or look, that person smoked cigarettes until they were 103. Talk about bias. You can see what you want to see. And if the majority of people have one experience, you can always look for an outlier, right? But I think, you know, when you start getting into that that discussion, it's a tender spot. And this is something that I've had to be, because I you talk about something for six years, you can get really comfortable and make yeah, really yeah. broad generalizations. And yeah, we wanted, to, we wanted to tell the readers, you know, Jess and I are sitting here on Read and Succeed. We're two white males. We're both in a position, you know, obviously of cultural privilege related to that. There's also a level of economic privilege that we're both currently living in. And we're talking about experiences that women and people of color are going through in their life and in their healthcare experiences. We are on the outside of these experiences talking into them. These are deeper than a thought exercise for us. We want to be we want to add to these conversations and the solutions, but we're also both aware we stand outside. Those are experiences which we will never experience, ever, either one of us. And, and we both admit that, right, Justin? I try, and I try to always have that cultural humility piece that I can only speak for myself. Yeah. But also that, again, like this is really about relationships. And so I'm really trying to build relationships that honor where people are and really try to change the experience or at least offer different experiences. And so that's something that, I mean, that, that'll probably, you know, if you think about Susan Sontag wrote in the late 70s. Yeah. If, if you go back a little further, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross wrote in the late 60s and Dame Cicely Saunders started the modern hospice movement in the late 60s. I, I mean, those conversations have been going for 60 years when you think about they didn't just write their books and start their hospices when they did. It's like, you know, there was a whole movement that started that allowed them to do that work. And and so we're building, well, we're always building on the shoulders of those that came before us, right? Sure, and, sure, yeah. And, and the conversations around the industrialization of death and dying in the West is probably a whole another conversation outside of this. But it's really interesting when you shared this book with me and we started reading it kind of simultaneously, I read an an article the other day around, so the early predecessor to chemotherapy was mustard gas. Oh, Lord. I mean, I mean it was like this crazy, like, okay, so we, we had taken mustard gas somewhere into Europe, and it was in a harbor, and it was attacked by the Germans, and American soldiers fell into water that was tainted with mustard gas and fuel. I mean, it was something crazy like that. And so yeah, yeah, yeah. it's been top secret since World War II. And somebody noticed did something to their, to their white blood cell count. Hmm. And that it gave them the idea of like, well, what if we use that and targeted it for, for cancer treatment? It's crazy, but you look at that and you look at radiation, it all came out of World War II. It's got a military industrial edge to it. After reading this book, 
And I'm going to talk about some of my experiences as a veteran here in a moment. But after reading this book, I, the the chemotherapy portion of that was, I, I never read anything like that. I thought I was one of those guys that seemed a lot in military service and being overseas and being in war zones. But I would take all that again uh, before I went under chemotherapy. Those passages in this text were just terrifying. To put it mildly, this is Read and Succeed. I'm Dave Campbell. One thing uh, you brought up a term, it was a title, end of life doula. I think modern culture and definitely popular culture within the definitely last five to seven years has become aware of doulas during birth, which we, we could call them a beginning of life doula. And now you spoke about an end-of-life doula. Could you explain what that position is, what services they provide? An end-of-life doula is actually going to function very much like a birth doula in terms of really getting to know a patient who is nearing the end of their life and helping them create a plan. So if you're an expecting mother and you hire a doula, every doula is probably going to offer slightly different services, but it's really going to be centered around what matters most to you. What can we do for you during this birth experience that's going to improve the experience and give you a sense of comfort and really act and function as a cheerleader and probably to varying degrees of engagement, depending on lots of different factors. But a deaf doula is going to do much of that same kind of thing, but just on the flip, the other end. And probably much like a birth doula, the earlier they get involved, probably the better it's going to be in terms of their ability to really assist. But I think that one place they would start is they would start with the advanced directive piece or the advanced care plan piece where they're really coming up with what do you want your death to look like and, and, and who needs to be part of this process. And there's actually somebody that I, I spoke with recently that has a, a death doula and they're from Canada. So I don't know how the payment structure is there, but here it's going to be out of pocket. So you're going to, you're basically, yeah. not gonna, it's not going to be covered by your Medicare or Medicaid. Sure, sure, sure. But person kind of functions slightly as a, not a therapist, but is an ear that they can talk about death. Support system. As part of the support system, I think there are death doulas that may come to the house if someone's actively dying that is there. Maybe, I'm trying to think of the, way, the right way to say it. They might help shape what your dying looks like. Do yeah. you want to be, you know, do you value your lucidity more than your comfort? So they may really advocate that you don't get as much morphine. Or do you want soft music playing? Do you want your children there? Do you not want your children there? Questions like that, if someone is dying from cancer, it takes the pressure off them saying to their daughter, I don't really want you here right now. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It, it, It puts the responsibility on a professional that can help navigate some of those situations and make some of those requests. I mean, I can imagine a death doula also being involved in the service and that legacy piece after the person has died, helping to prepare the body or helping to conduct some kind of service. I mean, I think there's a lot of different variations, but it's it's much like a birth doula where you are there to, to basically escort that person through the process. And the engagement probably is going to be very much dependent on the people that are involved. And those are areas where hospice probably could not interject themselves. So hospice provides a great service and they're going to be providing social workers or chaplains. And I think a death doula would have a role on a hospice team. And I don't think they, at least in Kentucky, as far as I know, 
are not currently engaged as much as they could be. I know there's been discussions around it. And, and now with COVID, everything is so fragmented that is probably put on hold for right now. But I could see a place in the future where a hospice team is providing care and then the death doula is there as an extra support and maybe more like a friend. And I'm saying that again in air quotes than, say, your hospice social worker. Um, And it might be a little bit more of a personal relationship than what a a social worker or a chaplain might do. There's some gray area there that I, I don't think we've fully fleshed out yet. Well, you know, I get some requests in the course of the show to have me talk about some of my personal experiences and relate them to some of the books that we read and and some of the conversations I have with guests. I personally think that my personal experiences are the least interesting thing I could possibly put on the air, but other people disagree on that. Uh, Today, for those listening, even though this is broadcast on a different date, today is September 11, 2020. 19 years ago today, the war on terror began. I served seven years on active duty. I was also in the Iraqi war with special forces and special operations for about seven months in late 2007 and early 2008. You're talking about a life experience where the reality of death and dying is there 24 hours a day. It's not in your face 24 hours a day. When you travel, it is. Then the reality is I served on a unit where members of that unit were killed in battle. When you, and I'm assuming it's still this way, you know, when a soldier prepares to go to, we we call it deployment, basically go to war, you you have your deployment file, or I can't even remember the name of it now, um, your folder. It's got your vaccinations, it's got your travel orders in it, and there's also your will. And that's just part of, you know, it's basically like you go out in the assembly line of out-processing as you're leaving the states and going over to the war. And your health directive and your will are part of that process. And a lot of those things are basically just fill-in forms. Okay, who's your next of kin? And you sign a name. Okay, if you die in combat or you die in a war, who receives your benefits, you sign a name there. And folder gets closed, and you know you put that in your duffel bag or your trunk, and you don't even think about it until you get back, and you got to turn it back in. During that experience in a combat zone, actively traveling, being being quite frankly, I mean, having other human beings try to kill me, members of my team killed in combat. We did not have one conversation ever about death or dying in in almost seven months. Uh, I think a level of that was a level of jinxing. You know, if we talked about it, it would happen. Sort of like a sport. I mean, I don't want to, I never ever want to make any equate sports and military service at all. But I think there's a level of, it's it's sort of like a sports team talking about losing. That theme may have kind of permeated our lack of a conversation in that area. But there was never ever one conversation in what we call the AOR, the area of operations, which is basically the, the combat zone of, okay, what happens if you die? What happens if I die? What do we want? We never even had those conversations before, during, or after. It was years later, and I think yeah, I was still in the military at the time, but uh, somebody came on, it was a workshop, and I was having some of my troops go to it, and it had to do with your will and health directive. And it, society was now transitioning from funerals to the celebration of life. And there was also... In, in church communities, this is also happening. And they were saying making preparations and having conversations and tending to the end of your life and thinking about it. 
you know, in insurance, your wills, how you want to approach it, how you envision that process happening, because we will all meet that process eventually. You know, tending to that portion of your life is the broader part of tending to a well-lived life. And that, I, I wonder, I can't even remember when that conversation happened. It, I think it was at near the end of my career. But if, if it had never been pitched to me like that, I it's funny, Justin, I think that opened up a space in my mind, as well as some books, but definitely that conversation about to be able to have the conversations that you and I are having having right now in terms of there's you really have no control over the beginning of your life, but you do have control over the middle and the end and thinking about them, learning about them and being open to them is part of what it means to live your life. And do you agree with that? I mean, I think that's a big and, and you brought I, I, I'm still thinking back to the part about jinxing. That, that's the truth. That's I'm being honest with you. No, we, no, I. I yeah. I mean, I hear people talk about that in death cafes, or I hear people talk about that, and it's like, well, people don't want to talk about it because they're afraid they're going to make it happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and, I've, and I've always heard it anecdotally from people, and I don't have personal experience with this in my own close relationships, but I can hear people talk about it in terms of, well, you know, she doesn't want to talk about this. Somebody gets a cancer diagnosis. Yeah. And it's like you don't want to couple the cancer diagnosis with an advanced directive conversation. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and, so, and, and so you just keep kicking the can down the road. And it's like, when's the right time? And the right time is really before the diagnosis. And so the revisiting the conversation is something that happens over time. And it's not like when you're getting I'm imagining I didn't serve in the military, but I can imagine I'm on a helicopter or I'm on a patrol getting ready to go out. It's like that's not really the time to start talking about for the the first time about death. Yeah. So I, I can imagine if I'm getting ready to have surgery, that's not the first time to be talking about if my heart stops, what do you want to have happen? Yeah. 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 Don G. Are you are you familiar with Don G from Wave 3? Uh, no, no, no. So Don G is, gosh, she's been on the air for a long time in the Louisville community. And she has had well over 20 surgeries for cancer and she had a stroke and she's been very public about her health concerns. But she had us on the air the first year we had before I die fest. And we asked her, do you have an advanced directive? And she was just kind of like, nope. Well, later that fall, she had a stroke yeah. and she invited us back the next year And, you know, I I get on the air with her and she tells me, she was like, I had that stroke. I got to the hospital. I could not respond. And I laid there and listened to my family fight over me. And I didn't have an advanced directive. And she's like, I have one now. And, you know, it was really this rich conversation with this person acknowledging their own vulnerability, their own mortality, and literally laying there unable to communicate. And I'm going to use the word watch. I mean, I guess she heard her family fight over her body. Wow. And so that's the consequence. Like if you haven't had that conversation, and maybe if you're young and you're in the service or you're involved in some kind of accident, you're going to be a little more proactive in trying to save someone's life. Yeah. And, and as your health declines, this being very clear about and revisiting this over time, the conversations that I have now is going to be probably much different than it is when I'm 60. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Or, or if I have an accident or if I have some kind of declining health. And I think it's just really important. If, if I was diagnosed with ostensibly treatable cancer right now, I would undergo treatment. My quality of life is high. I have my faculties. I have ostensibly a, a long life ahead of me. 
yes, like, please, let's get into treatment tomorrow. But if I'm at a point where the, the cancer is too advanced or I my health has declined or I have some kind of extenuating circumstances, let's talk about what are my options and what are what's my quality of life going to be like. Well, she even touched on that in the, in the book and said one doctor was recommending treatment that was really not as aggressive. She got a second opinion for aggressive treatment. And the doctor said, I think she, she brought her support system there, some of her girlfriends, and they said, what are the risks? And they said, it could kill her. And she ultimately, as a patient, said, I'm willing to risk death to live. Yeah, that's a really powerful thing to have to look at and make the decisions. And I mean, I think that it's really something that we need to be considering all the options. If you look at the triangle between the provider, the oncologist, or whoever the specialist is, the patient and then their loved ones, it takes somebody to have the courage to interject that conversation and, and have real conversations that you want it to be consensual. I mean, you, you don't just want to force, if you're the provider, you don't want to force the conversation on someone. You want them to agree to it. But it takes a lot of courage for people to generate that. So, I mean, that's that's part of the conversation is, you know, having the skill set to step up and, you know, just put it all out there. But you want to make sure that the person that is receiving the information, particularly if they're the patient, that they're, you might not be able to do it in the first conversation. I mean, it might yeah, be. Yeah. One last question for you, Justin. Are there any books that you feel the audience could benefit from reading? I know you've mentioned some already. Texts that you would recommend that some of the audience members, that they could read to learn more about death and dying and the work that you do at the, the Before I Die Festival. So I always think Dr. Atul Gawande's book, Being Mortal, is a great starting place. And what I really like about it is he brings together all these different case studies and shows the inventiveness and the creativity of either patients or the places where they're residing and making it a better experience. So that is a book that I, and I think it's written really well, and I've read it two or three times, and it, and it still holds up. The other book that I always recommend is The Art of Dying Well by Katie Butler. She takes a long view and says, if you're 50 and you have ostensibly 20 to 25 years left, here is the things that I would be thinking about in terms of maintaining your health and getting and preparing for old age and declining health. And then she breaks it up into let's pretend you're 70 and you haven't done anything. Here are the things you can do that are should be at the top of your list. And then let's pretend that you're diagnosed with a catastrophic illness and you have weeks to months to live. Here are the things that you can think about doing. And so it breaks really gives you a broad view of things to be considering. And back to our conversation about end-of-life doulas, it really gives you some prompts to think about what matters most to you and you know, how can you get the most out of this if you're when you're facing the inevitable, when that mortality piece comes. Yeah. Are you and your loved ones ready? And can you prepare for that in advance? Okay, well, ladies and gentlemen, the text that we reviewed today and we discussed was The Undying by Ann Boyer. That was the 2020 Pulitzer Prize winner for general nonfiction. It was published in 2019. Our guest was Mr. Justin Magnuson. You can email Justin at jamagn01 at louisville.edu. You can learn more about the Traeger Institute at University of Louisville, where he works at traegerinstitute.org. That's T-R-A-G-E-R. -E and you can learn more about the Before I Die Louisville Festival that Justin hosts at 
at beforeidielou.com. That's L-O-U. Justin, thank you so much for making the time to come on Read and Succeed today. And this was an absolute fantastic conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dave. It's always great to talk about this. And it's, it's nice to connect with you. And, and really, you know, I, I think what you're doing is, is great work. So thanks so much. Justin Magnuson, University of Louisville's Traeger Institute and host of Louisville's Before I Die Festival. That's it for episode 11 of Read and Succeed. Join us next episode reviewing the 2016 Pulitzer Prize winner for nonfiction, Evicted, Poverty and Profit in the American City by Matthew Desmond. This is Read and Succeed. I'm Dave Campbell. Thanks for listening.